Welcome to Everything Life Coaching. I'm John Kim. And I'm Noelle Cordeaux. We are the founders of Journey Coaching. We're super passionate about all things coaching and want to share what we've learned from over a decade of coaching and training over a thousand life coaches. Dive deep into a more meaningful career, find freedom, and make an impact on the world around you. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Everything Life Coaching. This is Noelle and I have a very special guest today, one of my friends, one of my mentors, uh, Dr. Justin Citron, and we are going to talk about intersectionality, culture, and coaching, learning, and institutions today. So, you know, let's talk about it. Um, who are you? What are you doing now? I am an associate professor at Widener University in Human Sexuality Studies. Um, I also do coaching and uh, diversity, equity, inclusion, social justice consulting work. Um, most of my work is at the intersection of DEI, SJ, and sexuality. And so coaching for me and the, the ways in which I do coaching or consulting are at that intersection. What's SJ? Social justice. Got it. Um, diversity, equity, inclusion, social justice. Sometimes people these days are saying justice, equity, diversity, inclusion. So that's kind of the center of the work that I do. And I also have the background um, as a, like in language, I was a Spanish and English teacher for quite some time. And so I also bring an intercultural communications approach to my work. And so, cause it's, it's not just about understanding other people as intersectional and diverse and understanding the dynamics of society, but it's also for me about understanding the way culture operates and the ways cultures function and understanding that like the way we communicate across and within cultures really depends on how well we're able to respond to cultural similarities and differences between us, whether that's, you know, people between like the heterosexual community and the queer community, or whether that's between people who live in, um, Spain and Latin America, because mm -hmm. all of those things are similar and different in different ways. Yeah. So, you know, I, I love taking the long view, the, the, how did we get here view? Um, what are some, what are some memories or, or what are some, some fun things kind of taking stock of, you know, that five, what, where we were five years ago and where we are five years later, how do you know me? Um, and, what has kind of, what's the evolution of the journey been like for you to, to move through the last five years towards doing things differently? Yeah. So I back then was a university professor at the same institution where you worked. And in the meantime, since then, between now, I was asked to step into a leadership role at my institution. So I served as an associate dean and the director of one of our academic uh, departments. And in after five years or so of doing that, in May of 2021, kind of hit my breaking point because I was really struggling with some of my own health stuff. Um, but a lot of that health stuff was a result of stress and not taking very good care of myself because of my focus on pleasing my institution and doing the work of an administrator. But part of where I hit my bottom point was because institutional change is hard. Institutional change is possible, 
but it really requires the people with the skills to do that kind of change and the commitment to do the hardest part of that change, because the hardest part of that change is the most essential part of it. And so since I came to to my institution, to Widener University, I've always been a change agent, a change advocate, um, because we've had needs to change ever since before I got there. Um, And I just hit a point where I just couldn't do it anymore. I wasn't feeling like I was being effective given the leadership environment I was in. And it was just taking a a toll on me personally. Um, And one of the things (laughs) that you taught me as a friend was sort of the importance of taking care of our bodies and making space for like joy and happiness. And you and another student um, who was in the program a little before you, both were really interested in positive psychology. And like I had known about it, but I never really spent any time in it. And you and I had a lot of conversations about positive psychology and like the importance of focusing on joy and thriving and happiness. And um, I actually have a book on my shelf called Authentic Happiness that I'm looking at right now. It was a book you told me about. (laughs) And last year when I hit my bottom at work, And I thought about like, my life is so fragmented, like my personal life, my work life, and the things that bring me joy, like, I don't have time for any of them, because I'm constantly having to choose between them. And I think I probably talked to you because I talked, I reached out to like my support system for about six weeks, I just literally scheduled meetings with everybody that I saw as like a person who understand, understood me as a human. Um, And I think I just realized that like no one would survive without functioning in an alignment with oneself. And so I decided to make some pretty big, hard career choices and left my administrative role, decided to continue at my institution, um, which is something I still don't know if I want to continue doing, but it's, I think, important to just leave that as like a reminder that none of us ever have to stay where we are in our lives. Um, and then I just was like, I need to, I need to choose me and I need to put me back together and do things that my career, my happiness, my personal life, like are all more tied together. And so this last um, nine months or so, I've been building a consultancy, which includes a coaching practice and really getting back to like the things that make me joyful and happy. Unfortunately, it's not always the most financially lucrative for me right now, but that's what new things are. Like new things are never like success off the, off the start. And like the difference for me now is that even though this is hard and it's not always like financially rewarding, it's rewarding in so many other ways. And I feel more whole and connected that my days are so much more fun. Awesome. Um, Whether it's, whether it's planning stuff or whatever, like I'm, I'm having so much more fun. Good. But thank you for always being like my cheerleader on the side of like, I'm a whole human and that's okay. <laughs> You're welcome. It, and there's so many great, I mean, there are so many great nuggets in there that you just discussed. So first of all, thank you for your vulnerability. I really appreciate it. Um, I remember when you called me and I laughed because you were the one 
who encouraged me to jump out of the matrix. And I was like, oh my, how the worm has turned. Here we go. (laughs) You're going to do it. And um, two, thank you for your vulnerability in talking about, you know, the struggle of, you know, jumping out of the matrix, jumping out of the institution. So in the early days when I was getting our, our company off the ground, man, did I struggle. Man, was I scared. And boy, was it hard. And it was the most rewarding thing that I've ever done. Uh, the, The emotional riches that were acquired have superseded any, you know, monetary value that I could hope for. Um, and also, it's a great reminder that, you know, hard things are hard. And I guess a question that I have for you, and, and this is just a question that I, I think about often, especially today, especially as we're kind of looking at the great resignation and where society is headed, is we've been so socially conditioned to believe that institutions will protect us and that we need to join them, suffer as we are joined to them. And they don't necessarily protect us. That's my view. Um, what do you see? My queer self is not protected by most institutions that I rely on every day. <laughs> Mine neither, friend. Mine neither. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, acceptance is always like half the battle. And I think I've known that for a long time, but I think we are so indoctrinated by the system that we ought to believe in it that we are also taught not to question it because questioning authority makes you a bad member of a community or team but if you take a step back and think about who made that community and who made that team it's not people who are me it's predominantly like there's people there who are part of me because I'm a I'm a white man, and that is definitely who who made most of the systems that we are required to participate in today. Um, but those systems are also made by cisgender folks, by heterosexual folks, by folks with money, and I'm not talking about a little bit of money, and by people who participate in the system, right? Like if you're going to be successful in a system, you have to play the rules of that system. And I've always been somebody who would play along to a breaking point. And I hit my breaking point this, this last year. Um, and now what I've realized um, much through, like I've, I've done anti-racism and, and cultural responsive stuff for a long time. I think the ways in which advocates and activists are helping us all to see that white supremacy and a white supremacist culture is still alive and well. Like I grew up in a place with, with the strongest KKK chapter in all of Pennsylvania. And so for me, I learned that like those were the white supremacists, the people who murdered people, the people who brutally harmed people. I didn't learn that the systems that I maintain and uphold as a white person in society today are still doing those things. And so I think this movement that we see happening has done a really good job to like, not only call out white supremacy culture for what it is, but also bring in all the intersectional components like ableism and sexism and heterocentrism and um, anti- immigrant or anti 
undocumented worker. Like there's so many layers of it. And I think that we're, we are, we have more access to information and the information itself is doing such a good job breaking it down into its parts. Like white supremacy sounds scary as a big word, but when you start to see that like perfectionism is a way that white supremacy happens and non-conflict or conflict avoidance is a way white supremacy happens and keeping people afraid is a way white supremacy happens. Like we start to see the parts of it. That's when the interculturalist in me who understands how culture operates because we have this system of norms and behaviors that uphold one another, that speaks my language. And those are behaviors I can do something about. Whereas calling someone or something white supremacist makes it, it's like a thing that I'm not. But if you were, when you break it down into those behaviors, I'm like, oh yeah, those are the things. And these organizations that you're asking about 100% operate by maintaining those behaviors and norms. I'm so glad that you're bringing it to, to behaviors and norms um, for, for a lot of different reasons. Um, one of the things that has been top of mind for me recently is humanism and mm -hmm. the way through our divided times, I feel, needs to be centered on our common humanity and that which we have control over, which is, you know, evaluating our behaviors and norms. And part of what I'm interested in with humanism is this idea of hating the system, not the humans. Because all of us have been, you know, socially conditioned in one way or another to understand that, you know, white supremacist, patriarchal, capitalistic society um, is what we have to work with. And that's actually absolutely not true. None of us have woke up, you know, when we were younger and imagined a world in which, you know, we didn't function under these systems, but we can start to. And, you know, as long as that is true, we have a responsibility to help the humans that are working in, adhering to, um, suffering under and struggling from, you know, uh, the weight of our time kind of move through it with dignity. And that's really important to me is, is that, that dignity piece. Um, there's an idea called the hospice model that as, um, as teachers and helpers, and healers and activists, we have a responsibility to help the old ways die with dignity. How does that land for you? Yeah. Like humans have lived and breathed on the planet for thousands of years. Capitalism has been around for like a tiny little speck of that, like <laughs> yeah, several decades, right? <laughs> and even the industrialization and like the, the way we live in community together, transportation, like it's all like real new. And so humans have had dignity forever. And I think that while we have funk, while we have been in this moment where the focus has become so focused on productivity and output and not on living, I think someone, I don't know that I'll live for it, but someone's going to look back at these times and be like, wow, they really lost their way there, didn't they? <laughs> they lost yes. touch with like 
holding each other, helping each other, working together. Playing. And really, like when you learn from anthropologists and historians about like the cultures of before, those cultures were cultures that, yeah, there was brutal violence and, and terrible things there. But there were also a lot of beautiful, human, connected, nurturing, loving, caring things. Um, and there's st- the other part of that is like there still is today. We just don't in quote unquote Western society see it because predominantly no one tells us about it because they want to control keeping us focused on ourselves and not seeing that like there are whole cultures and societies around the world that are still living with dignity and respect and mutual care and camaraderie and dignity, right? Yeah. And they're mostly like, yes, please leave us alone. Like, let us keep doing this without you because we're good. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know, that's a fair assessment. And, you know, as, as you were talking about um, how living is kind of missing from the overarching burden of output and productivity, I was thinking about that book that's on your shelf, Authentic Happiness and Coaching and Positive Psychology. And so, you know, breaking it down here, coaching as a discipline has only been around for 35 years. Uh, it's, it's younger than both of us. And positive psychology has only been around empirically validated since the 90s. And then the science of neuroplasticity that so much of the work of coaching sits on was only really solidified in 2005. And so we're talking about really like in terms of the slivers of history, a millisecond in the sliver of history. And so much of coaching, positive psychology, neuroplasticity is centered around helping people experience joy in their lives and live their lives. Um, So given that, with the intersection of, you know, cultural competency, the work that you do, the jumping out of the matrix, moving forward, where do you see coaching fitting in? And what might you say is um, the bright future we can hope for from this field? You know, as you were talking, I'm like, I feel like maybe we're the EMTs (laughs) and the lifeguards of the, the human experience from like the mental health and like survival place. Because maybe there aren't people in the ocean or in pools who need us to save them or, you know, people aren't having heart attacks that we can do something about, but like we can be people who sit down, assess the situation, work in partnership with our coaches, our clients and come up with a plan and come up with steps that we can break down and work together on. And part of that plan is like seeing ourselves for ourselves, not as actors in a system doing the system's bidding, but like really showing up and looking at like, what's the life I have? What's the life I want? How do I focus on the joy in it? And then see it as a, as a, as a challenge to confront and work through. And sometimes the challenge is just like a, a knot in our stomach that we don't know why it's there, but through focusing on joy, we can start to shift our energy and our time and our um, investment in things that make us happy. Because when we're happy, 
those knots will start to unravel a little bit. And then we can know like, okay, so the knot has startled, started to unravel. Now we can see its parts. Which strings do we need to pull on it to unravel? So I think coaches play a huge part in that. From a cultural responsiveness piece, we need to be able to understand our culture. So like the white supremacy culture, the, the systems that exist, how they were formed, how they're maintained, but then also all the other parts of culture, like the ways that we greet one another, the ways that we tell time, the way that we understand space. I don't mean outer space. I mean, just like the space around us that like, you know, there are people who live very happy lives in these ginormous houses made of brick and stone and wood. And there are people who live and survive happily in houses made out of the natural environments around them that are not processed and, you know, biodegrade back into that space. So like there's so many ways of living, but when we don't see the options, we don't know the capacity that we have. And so cultural responsiveness or cultural competency is about understanding like not just my culture, but where does my culture fit in the diversity of cultures that are out there? And once I start to see that, I start to see new things in my own culture I didn't know were there. And that, I think, is one of the things I love about that kind of work or that approach to work. Um, I love and that. And it's just remarkable. Like, yeah. I, you know, something that's coming up for me, um, as you were talking about the the differences in, in the way people live and, and, and what they find as just, you know, their way, many of the frameworks for happiness through positive psychology are very um, Western-based, American society, um, U.S., Canada, English-based. Um, and I want to play around with that. I want to run one by you. So um, Kate Heffron, who's one of my favorite positive psychology researchers, has a really simple framework for understanding how we can bring more uh, contentment joy, happiness into our lives. And it's a third, a third, and a third. And that what human beings generally require is one third focus on achievement, which would could be physical or mental. It's really hard to be working on physical and mental at the same time and be functioning at like 80% in both, which would be the ideal. Then in the middle, we have contentment, which is just waking up every day, feeling satisfied in your life, appreciating sunsets, snuggly covers, um, whatever that means to you. And then the third part is um, hedonic, which is pleasure. And that can be, um, you know, fun. That can, that can be any flavor that, that human beings might assign to pleasure. And I'm thinking that if we took a culturally responsive lens to that framework, each of those orientations for achievement, contentment and pleasure would all have different meanings all over the world. Yeah. All right. Let's play with that. Can you give me an example? Let's just take, so achievement, um, contentment and hedonics in, in American society, uh, that would generally be characterized as like having a buff body and a full bank account, material things in terms of achievement, uh, degrees, all of the social construction that we're talking about in the middle, um, you know, contentment 
I said, as, as I was saying the words, I was like, you know, snuggly sheets. Oh, you know, that might not be a norm for everyone. And then, um, hedonic, you know, we tend to think of like food, sex, drugs, rock and roll. Right. Um, so what's another culture that we could juxtapose against that? That's a good question. Um, I think achievement also looks like, I think I would be remiss if I tried to pick one culture and describe it consistently across the three things. So I'm going to pull different alternative examples. Like achievement can also look like, um, taking good care of the land in a way that it doesn't catch on fire all the time. Mm. Um, rotating crops so that, and I don't mean the way we rotate crops between like soybeans, wheat, and corn, but I mean like true approaches to agriculture that are not only about like keeping the soil healthy, but that are about making the soil better. Like it, it's this idea, like a lot of indigenous cultures, their way of relating to the earth is about not just like sustaining it, but giving back to it. And so achievement, when we're thinking about like feeding and nourishing something that actually feeds and nourishes us, like that's a completely different way of thinking about achievement. Um, the middle one was contentment, contentment. I think that meditation and being at one with the universe is a kind of contentment that's very different than some of the contentment you described. But like so much of uh, what we would call Eastern faiths are about harmony and peace, not just with one another or with the earth, but with the vibrations of the universe. And there are people and practitioners who have ways of centering their energy in ways that like literally vibrate with the rest of the, the universe that like, I I don't even know how to describe that kind of contentment. Like I'm doing my best right now with you from what I've read and learned, but like that is a totally different vibe contentment. Yes. And then hedonic, I think when we, So one of the things that I teach about in some of my sexuality stuff is about relationships and how in the the quote unquote West, we tend to to think about relationships as like romantic relationships where two people see each other, a spark flies, they fall in love, they get married, and they're supposed to live happily ever after. And most of the time they struggle to do so because of all the things we've been talking about. In cultures where number one, there isn't the marriage we even know. Um, And in cultures where marriage is what we would call arranged or interfamily marriage, where two different families marry by having two members of those families marry, like the pleasure and joy people experience through relationships changes when relationships are not between two people, but are between a system of people and another system of people. And I think we lose so much of understanding relationships. And this is one of those places that like polyamory and non-monogamy come in of like, when people are in joy together, it may not be the physical genital pleasure we think about when we think about sexual pleasure, 
but sexual pleasure is also on a spectrum of like, you know, like a lot of people who are pursuing this thing called sexual pleasure are still not experiencing it. But the joy between people, the energy that comes out of that is actually like, you could look at that through like a hedonic lens and say like, they're just pursuing their freaking life to live their best lives. If it happens to be built on a framework where communities come together instead of an individual gets what they want, like that's a completely different paradigm of understanding what hedonism is. And I think that if we were to go back to like the neuroplasticity and like neurological piece, joy is joy in our body and in our body. How we get there is what's different and the cultural norms around what's okay, not okay, what's rewarded, what's not rewarded, what's actually punished. Like people can get their pleasure, however they get their pleasure. And and I think that when we take a culturally responsive or, or broader picture of what these things are, it, it changes the opportunities, the options that are out there and it makes them like so much richer. And what yeah. we might find is that there's people who I was talking to a student yesterday who's, wants to research gender and sexuality of people who people with autism, or as she would say, autistic people, because she's part of the community. And she's like, that's what we call ourselves. When people say people with autism, like you're clearly not us. Cause that's not what we say. But anyway, she would say, she said like, I want to better understand the gender and sexuality of people with autism. And I'm like, interesting because what if the language we use as neurotypical people to talk about those things just doesn't work? to talk about the phenomenon that autistic people experience. Mm. Because what if we let them choose their words? What if we let them describe it the way they experience it? If their neurological environment is different than mine, then why should we lean on neurotypical language to talk about something that is not neurotypical? Yeah. And, you know, That's, that's really compelling. And it's kind of bringing me back to um, the application of coaching in our time within um, institutions, whether they be neurotypical, or whether they be, you know, teaching and learning, or whether they be corporate, of folks having the bravery and the skill set to say, what would happen if we found a way to understand each other and understand what somebody else needs to, to, to do to language their existence, what somebody else needs to do to express you know, um, their preferences for feeling comfortable at work, to express their preferences for feeling comfortable at school, um, I think it could be changing. Well, and what if systems designed themselves around the success of the people who are a part of them. And that's the thing that I have found so maddening. And when I work with, I have some other coaching consulting work I do with, with people around working with organizations around DEI or social justice. And so often it's like, we're here as like the repair people and the EMTs to like keep the workers going. But the real problem is the system itself is not designed for these workers. It's not designed for their success and happiness. It's designed for profits, like all the capitalist stuff. And we can do our work, but like I think as coaches, part of our work is also to hold those systems accountable 
and to coach those systems in how to better show up for the people that they want to be a part of. Oh, yeah. And and that's I mean, and that's the hospice model is is helping the old way die well. And the 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 other part, the other half of that is, um, you know, it, it's kind of a yin and yang is that you know, what comes after hospice? It's new birth. Um, yeah. It's the midwifery model where new systems are being birthed into the world. But, you know, where we are right now is that the world isn't quite ready to receive the new systems. And there are so many people out there doing so much work to clear the space so that future generations can really come in and build anew from the ground up. Yeah. This has been an awesome conversation. Um, I'm delighted that we got to have it and explore all of those things um, that we did. And I also want to make sure that you have an opportunity to share with folks who are listening um, how they can work with you, how they can come to you and utilize your skill set for coaching and or consulting. So what do you do? Uh, where can folks find you? And you know what what is it like to work with you? Yeah, um, folks can find me at sexualitysolutions.com. Um, I do two things, I would say, like the two buckets of things I do. One is I help white folks and queer folks show up better in the world for one another and for people who are oppressed or marginalized around us. Um, White folks have a lot of work to do to show up better in the world for people who are not white, but also as we heal the problems of white supremacy, white folks have a lot of our own work to do to like get ourselves in a better place for one another as well. And queer folks are not always the best, um, especially white queer folks at showing up for each other because we've all been, we've all experienced so much trauma and harm in our lives. And, you know, it's, it's sometimes trite to say hurt people hurt people, but it's true. And I think what I try to do is help people heal, but also help people find ways of being that are supportive, um, collaborative, cooperative, and really focus on pleasure and joy and, and authentic connection. Um, a lot of queer folks, because of the thing that makes us different is our sexuality or our gender, often find themselves participating in like amplifying that. So like, because our sexuality and gender is what makes us different, it's the thing that we then focus on. And there's so much richness and beauty to us. And I think um, I really enjoy helping people unpack all that and find that like, there is so much to me that I love. And then our sexuality and gender actually feels more amazing. And so that's one of the things I do. The other um, bucket, or so those are the two buckets. What it's like to work with me. Um, I ask folks what their goals are, where they want to go. And I put together a, a process, co-create a process to do that. Um, I like to work with folks individually, in couples, um, small groups. We can work weekly or every other week. Um, but I, the thing that I like most is a process that works and is practical for people because if we try to force it, it's not going to feel authentic and integrated into people's lives. Um, and it's, yeah, so that's that. The other part of it is 
I come from a sex positive intercultural place because sex is one of those things that can bring us great joy and great pain. And we can experience both, neither or one. And I come from a place of like, let's find the joy in it. Let's find the happiness in it. And let's work together to unpack the messages we have that get in our way um, and help people find that like these categories, there's so many of them. And we all find ourselves like having to choose which one of them instead of realizing that we can be all of them, some of them, none of them. And um, one of my mentors once said like, we say human sexuality, not sexuality by itself, because sexuality is the very thing that makes us human. If we didn't have sex, whether that's in a tube, in a bottle, cellularly, or through interactions between people, we wouldn't have more people. And so we should have that be a part of ourselves that we get joy and happiness from, um, and so I, I like to help people figure out what that is for them. So reach out to me on my website. You can email me at justin at sexuality solutions. And my work like makes me happy now when I end my days. I'm like, look what I did today. Like, and look what these people are doing for me. Like it's, it's a, it's a community experience instead of just like going to work. Yes. And thank you for modeling, um, you know, great coaching. Thank you for all that you bring to our students as part of our program. And you can always find Justin inside of our organization if you're interested in becoming a coach yourself. Um, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. I'm delighted we get to do this. And I will talk to you next time. We'll have many more conversations. Awesome. It's been a pleasure for me too. Thanks for having me, Noel. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to Everything Life Coaching. If you're feeling the draw to become a coach, head to journey.co slash everything to explore a new career that brings fulfillment, gives you a true sense of purpose and a strong community to do it in. We created Journey Coaching to equip you with the tools, training and community you need to attain your goals. Join Journey Coaching and begin your journey towards personal freedom and a transformative state of growth today. That's J-R-N-I dot C-O slash everything.